The US wants to, you know, control the natural resources of countries like Bolivia and Venezuela for their own benefit, to extract these resources, not to have any partnerships about developing the country, industrializing the economy. And that's completely different to what China's done. Hi, this is the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity. I'm Ileana Chan. This is my co-host, Wei Chan. <laughs> I should have let you say your name. <laughs> and we're here with um, Fiona Edwards, a journalist and activist, and um, a signatory for the No Cold War campaign, which um, has just launched a British chapter about in the middle of June. So. Thank you so much for joining us and coming here and enlightening us. Enlightening us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for um, having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation with you both. Okay, so let's uh, let's dig into, I guess, the first thing, which would be, what is the No Cold War campaign? Um, well, we we launched this international campaign called No Cold War last July in July 2020, and this was in response to what was the increasing aggression. Um, towards China um, from the United States, which um, from the trade war, military encirclement, and um, the people that launched this campaign, the signatories that launched this campaign said, this constitutes a a threat to all humanity. So we've got together an international campaign to say, rather than this this aggression from the United States against China, which is sort of basically a, a new cold war, we need to step back from this situation and have global cooperation and peace. So that's what Um, inspired people to come together to launch an international campaign last year. So for people who might be like, what the heck are you talking about? (laughs) There's a Cold War with China. Um, How would you sort of make them see that they're, because most people, I just came back from the US. And so a lot of people in the US might just think, well, China's kind of a scary country Um, and they're out to get us. Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is a result of a huge propaganda offensive by um, the United States mainstream media and politicians, which is actually creating a false idea that China is a threat when nothing further from the truth. I mean, if you just take the military situation, which um, the US has been building up a really large military presence in the Pacific region against China for many years now, and you now have 400 military bases that surround China. Um, there's like a, over 700 billion pounds being spent, uh, sorry, dollars being spent every year um, on the US military. This is increasingly being targeted on, on weapons uh, targeting China. Um, and US warships regularly roam around, um, you know, the South China Sea, um, the Pacific region. This is very threatening. Um, the US, um, China has no military bases surrounding the United States. You don't see warship ships from Beijing going along the coastline of, of California. So. It, it's, it's creating a, a media narrative that China is some sort of threat. Um, this is based a lot on, on conspiracy theories, um, demonization of China, and it, it's not true. And actually what's really the threat to people of the US and people of Britain and all across the world is actually this military buildup against China and also the economic Cold War that's coming along with this as well. The idea that, you know, uh, sanctions, tariffs against China, which which are actually designed to try and um, attack China's economic growth, its development. Um, that's the, the meaning of these, but it actually backfires. Like the these these this economic cold war affects um, jobs in the United States, 
it affects living standards in the United States. In Britain, we're not having 5G from, um, from China, so we're going to get it later and it's going to be more expensive. So it's very damaging, this Cold War, from an economic point of view. Um, and the most menacing element of it of all is this military buildup. Um, and, and in order to justify that, the US um, and its allies are having to present in the media that China's some big threat and it, it just doesn't exist. China is not, um, China is a potential partner um, to solve the common problems facing humanity. And that's what um, at No Cold War we believe in, global um, cooperation um, to tackle really serious problems like climate change, like the pandemic, uh, poverty, alleviation across the world. You know, the list goes on of real serious threats that we're facing and it's definitely not China that is the threat to us. Um, what about this claim that um, China is the new imperialist power? Like uh, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people know of America as an imperialist power. Um, and part of, I think, the, the propaganda or the, the narrative in this Cold War is, you know, China is their um, sort of, if we, if America doesn't continue the imperialism, <laughs> China is really in place to, to be an imperial power. Right, and the Chinese are colonizing Africa or something like that. And what, what would you, because I, I heard some of that in sort of the mainstream media sort of years ago, and I just thought, hmm, probably, you know. Um, so what do you, so um, why do you think that narrative has been built up? And, and, um, and is it true? Do you think, do you think it's true? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, this Cold War, like, I mean, it, it is very much focused on China, but it does affect a lot of developing countries too. Like there's a Cold War happening in Latin America. I mean, just this week at the UN, uh, the overwhelming majority of countries in the world condemned the blockade of Cuba. This is part of the Cold War, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's attempting to strand Cuba. You've got sanctions against Venezuela and Nicaragua. Um, and, and the US government explicitly says, you know, that they want to overthrow these governments. That's against international law. For the United States to intervene in countries in Latin America to try and overthrow um, the governments that are democratically elected, that's an attack on sovereignty, that's an attack on uh, the people's right to self-determination, it's an attack on democracy, it's actually an attack on human rights and, and economic development because the people are suffering um, economically because of these sanctions. So um, in terms of, um, if you want to talk about what's happening in the, in the global, what's the experience um, of Latin America, of Cuba, um, and other countries in Latin America uh, when it comes to China versus the United States. Well, you've had the United States go, we've got a global pandemic. What a great opportunity to strangle the Venezuelan economy. Let's tighten the sanctions on the oil. Let's try and bring people to the brink of starvation. And what's been the approach of, of China? It's been sending shipment after shipment after shipment of aid and medical supplies to help um, deal with the pandemic, which has been essential. They have um, defied the sanctions from the United States and bought Venezuela's oil. So for people in Venezuela to say that there's some equivalency here between the United States and China is ludicrous. Um, the idea that this is imperialism, well, since when does imperialism not try to overthrow our government is the sort mm -hmm. of response we'll get from um, progressive people in Latin America. So it's a very different experience. And, and it's not just that, but also in, if you look at um, Bolivia, another example recently, I mean, there was a coup um, in, um, last year against Eva Morales, which overthrew um, the government um, and installed a, a far-right dictatorship. And one of the motivations for this coup in Bolivia was that Elon Musk at Tesla wanted to get the hands on, on um, Bolivia's uh, lithium. He even admitted this on Twitter. Um, 
And the US wants to you know, control the natural resources of countries like Bolivia and Venezuela for their own benefit, to extract these resources, not to have any partnerships about developing the country, industrializing the economy. And that's completely different to what China's done. Um, they've entered into, prior to the coup in Bolivia, they were entering into massive agreements with the um, Bolivian government to help Bolivia develop its own lithium industry, to industrialize, to produce batteries, to produce electric vehicles. And this was, this was what the United States didn't want to see. They want to keep uh, Bolivia in, in its place, as they would say, just exporting this raw material unprocessed. Whereas China is, is listening to the, um, well, not interfering in, in Bolivia and, and, and entering in mutually beneficial partnerships. Mm-hmm. And the Bolivian government say, we want to develop this. Um, let's have a, a cooperation in terms of investment. China's got a lot of expertise in, in, in green industries. And that's, that's a world of difference. So anyone who says there's no difference between the US and China, they're both twin evils, they're both threats. It's just not reality. It's not and, it, and that comes very, very starkly when you look at the situation in, in Latin America, which is something that I do uh, research a, a lot on. I mean, it's it, it, the idea doesn't get a hearing. You know, the idea that China is evil, uh, mm. a really um, imperialist approach into, into Latin America is it's just not a serious argument. That's kind of sort of, you know, what I've been finding out over the last year. And thank you very much for organizing that uh, no call war inaugural uh, meeting. I found that really, really informative. And I just feel overwhelmed with how much unlearning and, and reading that I need to do to understand the, the, the interconnectedness of the struggles of, of com- countries in the global south. Um, and, and, and kind of, I remember like a few years ago, and probably a lot of people in the UK don't really understand much about Latin America, and and when you mention the word Venezuela, people start scoffing. It's it's a it's a common kind of centrist or right wing talking point to sort of um, hold up Venezuela as, as a, a failure of uh, communism. Uh, that's why they're poor because they are socialist and and, and there's economic mismanagement and things like that. And also that uh, Maduro is uh, an illegitimately elected or uh, uh, illegitimate kind of uh, government. Uh, how do you think the media has been complicit in in framing it this way? And, and do you agree with that characterization? Yeah, well, I think I think that the the way the mainstream Western media um, unfortunately doesn't give very accurate um, line on what happens in Latin America. I mean. Um, Maduro is a democratically elected president in Venezuela, like you read articles um, about Venezuela talking about the economic situation and how difficult it is, and they managed to not mention the word sanctions. <laughs> how can you do that? How can we take oh this journalism God. seriously if yeah. you don't mention the words US and sanctions? Yeah. So I think I think that's part of the issue. And you know, often you read things and you're like, well, that looks very similar to this press release I've just read on the um, State Department website. You know, it's 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 kind of, you know, it's kind of how it works. On that point of the media, sorry, um, um, I mean, you expect kind of Sky News, Fox News, CNN, um, and kind of centrist neoliberal and right-wing media to, um, you know, to spout these lines and to, to almost just parrot government talking points or, or, or foreign policy talking points. Um, but why does the left-wing media 
behave so disappointingly or because I have not really seen any counter narratives in, in publications like The Guardian or if there are less counter narratives and, and, um, and people talk about kind of the death of the anti-war left and, and how, how we haven't had major opposition uh, mainstream opposition to war on the left for, for quite a few years now. Do you, do you agree with that or do you have any uh, opinions on that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think that um, the, the situation in the world, you know, it's, it's particularly in, in a country like Britain, in, in, in Europe and the US, it, it is going to the right. And I think mm -hmm. that that impacts, you know, progressive, what, what, what presents itself as progressive media. Although I think, you know, certain publications have got a very dodgy history anyway like um in the past but i think that um you know for example the the, the, the u.s uh, soft coup in, in brazil recently uh which which culminated in in the installation of of um bolsonaro which people know the far-right uh, president of brazil who's chopping down the rainforest at record speed um you know attacking communities there is responsible for one of the worst coronavirus catastrophes in the entire world um, and, and called coronavirus just a little flu. Now he got in power because um, of the Trump faction in the United States. And this is not, you know, this hasn't been widely um, publicized and discussed. And it's been the struggle within Brazil. Now uh, the, the, um, the Trump corruption charges against Lula, which led to him being put in prison, even though he was the leading candidate who would have defeated Bolsonaro in the presidential election. Those, those, um, those corruption charges getting uh, squashed by the courts is now leading to a bit more of a discussion internationally but you know these you know I think we have a, a, a real issue of different points of view being expressed um, and there's a big censorship push when when things are moving to the right in in the kind of more western world and I think and that this links directly with the cold war you know you see um, uh, real censorship of, of different progressive Latin American websites like Telesaur on Twitter the Cuban um, mainstream, uh, the Cuban media get, gets attacked. Um, in Britain, we've actually had, you know, CGTM, which is the state broadcaster for um, China in the English language. Um, that was, they had their uh, license revoked by the British authorities. So, you know, the BBC carries a line, you know, which is, you know, from the British state. China can put out a TV, put its own line on its TV stations. You know, are we going to listen to the different points of view or, or not? I think. Um, you're right that there is a bit of an issue of a lack of a voice for progressives, um, in, uh, particularly in the West. And, and I think the trend is actually towards more censorship. So I think with campaigns like No Cold War and, and what you're doing here with the podcast, it is really important to put forward an alternative narrative because, um, you know, they say that the first casualty in any war is the truth. And if you've got this Cold War, you have to realise that there's so much propaganda and false information that's going to be put out there because... They want to get the you know as much of the public on board with this as possible. So yeah, I think you're re really correct to point that out as a very dangerous situation, not having the real information and the real facts uh, before us. I think one of the issues too, like we're both we're both Malaysian, Chinese, British, um, and one of the issues I find being, I guess, in a way, part of the Chinese community. <laughs> is just how do you it there seems to be almost a generational divide on mm -hmm. this idea of cold war against china because of the xinjiang issue and also the hong kong protests there's almost like um our parents uh, generation they tend to look more i wouldn't say objectively but maybe more favorably um towards china 
And then there tends to be in, in our generation, maybe like more of the Western line of um, democracy, freedom of speech and all mm -hmm. these things mm -hmm. that um, without the awareness that it's also being weaponized. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we almost, um, we almost veer, veer towards like being so suspicious of China because we don't want to be accused of being pro-China, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was actually something interesting about watching the No Cold War panel, which um, we learned so much from. But then when um, Li Jingjing, I think is her name, when she came on as part of the panel, I think our first instinct was a bit like, why do you have a pro-China propagandist on your panel? Won't that undermine your efforts? Well, no, I, I mean, I think one of the key things um, in this international movement, which is developing, which is just beginning against the Cold War, is that we need to engage with everyone who is against this Cold War. And that obviously includes China. And as a country of 1.4 billion people, I think they have to be part of the conversation. And I think you know, it's like with, with the CGTN uh, ban um, that we had from British authorities. It's like, you don't need to agree with everything that CGTN uh, says or puts forward, is whether or not you think that should be part of the debate, whether that should be part of the discussion. Like, um, you know, and, and it's not just from the point of view of free speech and democracy, but mm -hmm. if you have a situation where Britain's sending its largest ever aircraft carrier loaded with US jets, that fighter jets and military equipment to, a really sensitive region like the South China Sea, um, and then you're not prepared to even listen to what, what, what China's point of view is, that can lead to a really dangerous situation. You know, if you've not got accurate information, um, then that can be, lead to very serious situations. But I mean, the other issue, um, so that's one thing, a threat to global, you know, world peace. But then the other issue is, you know, if you take on the situation of the coronavirus, like not listening to China and what they did to very, very quickly deal with the pandemic to crush the virus. I think they've had less than 5,000 deaths in a country of 1.4 billion, which is way less than what Britain has as a, as a much tinier country. We're not, you know, there is an opportunity to learn from other countries. And I think what we have to have the kind of humility to have that, that discussion and that, um, that dialogue. And I think, especially with a country like Britain, with its history of, you know, colonization in Hong Kong for 150 years, the words freedom and democracy human rights in Hong Kong, forget about it. They had none of that. So the idea that, um, especially as a country, as Britain, is in any position to talk about any of these things in relation to China is, is really ludicrous. But like, but like you said, I mean, the, the issue of opposing the Cold War is vital. And it's, it, you don't have to support China. You don't have to be pro-China. On the contrary, right. diversity of opinions and views. But I think within that, you have to kind of make sure that everyone is represented. And, and that includes, Chinese people who are going to defend their country. And so I think that even if you don't want to agree with what people from China say, listening and engaging mm -hmm. dialogue is really important to get a total view of the situation and to get to the truth. So yeah, so I think that's important. But I mean, I'd be interested to know, yeah, your points around the experience of Chinese diaspora communities. Yeah, I think you're much more of an expert on me that, uh, on that than, than myself, of course, so. One of the... Um... One of the um, one, one of the things that um, kind of sent me on this journey to, to recognizing anti anti China bias was actually kind of the 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 
how illogical I found um, the media coverage around coronavirus um, and where China was simultaneously lying about or covering up the coronavirus and ignoring it, yet doing the biggest, harshest lockdown in, in history and the quickest lockdown. And also this thing about how they sat on the truth for six days and then, um, uh, and, and that is that, uh, and therefore that the spread of coronavirus in, in the States is, is China's fault, uh, despite the fact that, that both Trump and, and Boris denied the severity of coronavirus for a good few weeks. So, I mean, I think if they were given an extra six days, I don't really feel that that would have made any difference. And then the kind of constant ramping up of, um, of just very illogical talking points. Uh, for example, China must be lying about their numbers. I mean, they could be, but even if it was doubled, that would still just be 10,000 deaths, you know? <laughs> um, if they could be lying about it by a scale of sort of, you know, tenfold, and it would it would still be better than what the UK and, and the US have done. And I severely doubt that, that, that their estimates are out by that much. Um, so, yeah, I just think, I'm, I'm just really, really, really shocked at, at the media coverage of, of, of the whole thing. I can't remember what my original point was now, but... Um, but well, that yeah. does lead me to, I have so many questions now about the, the disinformation that's happening around mm -hmm. um, coronavirus, because mm -hmm. I, I mean, we all want to know the truth, mm -hmm. you know, but it's an ongoing discovery, exploration, let's say, but we have to sort of sift through all this propaganda. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the things is this like whole, which we kind of did cover the vaccine diplomacy thing, um, which like, can we trust the reports that are saying that the Chinese vaccines are less, I don't know if we have any insight into this, that they're less, you know, effective where this, you know, cause there's so much, um, I guess, Western media coverage saying that like, oh, you know, China gave all these vaccines to these countries. Why are these countries still affected by COVID? when everyone knows herd immunity is like way more than 50%, but say like, that's the whole, so that's kind of the narrative, um, like that these vaccines were just bullshit, essentially. Um, do you have any insight into that sort of thing? Um, well, I mean, I think the, the issue on the coronavirus is that a genuine catastrophe has happened in many, many countries. Um, the US, well, they've, I think they've had over 600,000 people have died. Um, in Britain, um, well over 100,000 people have died. And, you know, I think that is a huge attack on people, you know, because it's been, it's the fault of, of the US government, it's the fault of the British government delaying um, response to the, to the virus, locking down too late and, you know, multiple occasions there's been waves and waves of this this virus so you can't say you know and they were aware of it before it even arrived on the shores you know um of the us and, and britain because china did work did 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 um respond very quickly cooperated with world health organization um at the very beginning that you can't ever have a perfect response because this is a new situation and no one's going to claim that everything was got perfect but things you know were responded to very fast and then and then China did show what 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 was what was needed to, to crush the virus so I think there's a huge um you know if people knew the truth I mean of, of what's happening you know China's had less than 5,000 deaths the U.S. has 600,000 deaths and that's because um in the U.S. 
profits were put first and in China, saving lives were put first. What impact would this have on the world population and what they think about the world? So that, that can't be the thing that's allowed to become the, the, the known, the, you know, the narrative. So they're constantly coming in with, you know, loads of attacks trying to obscure that. I mean, and again, the real situation is, you know, the uh, countries like the US and other developed countries are hoarding vaccines. They're not sharing them with the global South, where China has been. Um, no one, you know, it's not the case that vaccines are a magic bullet. I think, the, no one, you know, I certainly don't think that's the, that's the sole solution. You need public um, health measures and such like. But, you know, I think that what you're saying around, you know, the attacks on China's vaccine, it's to, it's to distract and to hide what, from the mistakes that have been made by by the US government and, and others, you know, it's, it's just a distraction. And that's what they're constantly engaging in. We're still living with, you know, these, the, the, this, this horrific pandemic is far from over. Um, yeah. What about the... I was just gonna say, just as, as, a, as, a, as a, an interesting point, I think Bloomberg News, uh, maybe a month or two ago, did publish an article saying that uh, Sinovac was actually very effective, sort of 90%, despite a 60% report in Brazil. But Brazil, I think um, the vaccine was very, very politicized and um, and also their method of counting was uh, completely different. So they were counting, uh, they, they counted asymptomatic infections as not protected, where, um, where I think in the UK we count sim symptom uh, asymptomatic and we do not count asymptomatic infections. Apologies. Yeah, so that's kind of the issue with different surveys from different countries with different control groups, etc. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's very hard to compare them all. Mm -hmm. I think um, in Indonesia, it was about 90%. What about this other thing that's become very controversial and has come back again um, in terms of the lab leaks? Because that um, has very much confused me. I guess in the beginning, the reason why it would be very much like a propaganda thing is the idea that it not only leaked from labs, uh, not that it leaked from la labs um, accidentally, but on purpose. I think so that's the part that would, would be like a weaponization of that theory. But now the theory that's coming up again and is more sort of acceptable in the US and stuff, it includes US complicity. So I just wonder if you have any insight into that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert on the coronavirus. I do listen to scientists and I think you know, the World Health Organization have done an investigation in China on the origins of the of the coronavirus, and they they say it's extremely unlikely that this this what I would say is a conspiracy theory from the United States around it coming from a Wuhan um, lab is is that you know they're saying it's extremely unlikely. And I mean, it, it, again, it, it's the politicization of this. So you know, the the the, the U, U.S. intelligence services. Well, we'll come on to that in a second. They they want to investigate this now. But the World Health Organization is not good enough for for the U.S. intelligence agencies. Well, I mean, how. We, we have a memory that can go back 20 years and we know the role of Western intelligence agencies when it comes to um, certain investigations ahead of, of, of wars like the war in Iraq and, and things like, you know, Iraq has weapons of mass destruction and, you know, rejecting UN investigations and things like that. So I think, you know, you have to be extremely skeptical of, of these, um, these conspiracy theories and there's no evidence at the moment at all of this. So I think, and, and that's, and we should listen to the scientific community on that. Um, but again, you know, th there's just a barrage of, of attacks that come through. Um, 
you know, and in this situation, I think it's an attack on on science, you know, so, um, yeah. The, the burden of proof, of course, and, and, and it's very, um, it's very interesting the way that people um, kind of uh, defend, defend these distortions and they say, well, prove that it didn't come from here or prove that, um, prove that a million people in Xinjiang are not being interned. And people forget that the burden of proof should not be in the negative. If you are making the accusation, you need to prove it. And let's look at the one million figure for the Xinjiang internment. Um, and then uh, when you click a blue link through to the um, piece of research that it's based on, you'll see that it's based on eight interviews of, of, of Uyghur people in, uh, in Xinjiang uh, saying that they believe 10% of their village uh, has been taken to uh, a re-education school or, or, or whatever they would like to call it. Um, and uh, that number is averaged out at about 10% or, or thereabouts and multiplied by the population of Xinjiang, by the Uyghur population of Xinjiang, um, to reach 1 million. And uh, as, as someone who um, is an analyst in my day job, I just find this absolutely ridiculous. And to see a bill uh, bandied about in Parliament based on that piece of research really, really disturbs me. And that's kind of why I, I like to come back to this thing of, of burden of proof. And, um, and, and also I do hesitate to, to, to defend China because I just feel that it's enough to just criticize the so-called evidence that people are looking at. I mean, I don't want to have to prove that China is a good country. I just want to look at these things that you're putting before parliament and, and say, what are these numbers, you know? <laughs> So I, I don't actually always think it's necessary to prove that a country is good or bad to, in order to oppose um, a hawkish narrative peddled by um, our governments and, 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 and by the US. Yeah, the Xinjiang thing seems like the most um, effectively used one in mm. the US, at least. Like, um, I guess prior to COVID, I mean, or even now, actually, but you just can't say China without saying genocide in the US. Like you have to say it in the same, even if you're talking about Mulan, um, <laughs> the Disney movie, somehow you have to, to put in that it was um, made in a genocidal region of China. Um, but I don't, that's the part that I, I do, how do we, um, push back on because there's so much silence around genocide like once you say genocide now you know you're in this very scary position of people being like you a genocide denier and um you know so how do we push back on something like that well well there, there, there are figures that have um you know like you say uh, sort of debunking the the um the research in inverted commas by people like Adrian Zenz and uh, mm -hmm. you know far right extremists essentially who believe they're on a mission from God to mm -hmm. use the Communist Party of China and there's very mainstream figures that have questioned this. The UN advisor um, Jeffrey Sachs, who's an academic in the United States, and he's done a really good article saying you know there's no evidence at all of a genocide in China, so you need to you know what is this based on? And, and actually, um, the government data from China shows that uh, the population of Uyghurs in Xinjiang has increased. Mm -hmm. and, you know, facts. I think you have to have a very facts-based discussion because you know the accusation of genocide. This is very serious. This is a very serious accusation. 
Mm. Obviously, mm. Um, if the population is increasing, um, if there's 24,000 mosques in a region, um, which is the case in Xinjiang, you, you have to, you know, when, 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 when the government doesn't apply a one-child policy to ethnic minority communities, and that has meant that ethnic minority communities have grown at a faster rate than the Han population, I think it's very important that we base these discussions on facts. And I think it's also very important to remember that, you know, the United States is engaged in huge aggression against China. It has justify this in some way. It has to justify spending 700 billion pounds on a military buildup a year. It has to justify 400 military bases. It has to justify all, all of the high-tech weaponry it's using to surround China, all of the warships it's sending through the coastline of, of, you know, of the South China Sea. So I think you have to really return to this point I said before of the first casualty of war is the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the key issue. You know, I mean, they're trying to soften up um, public opinion for these, for these things. And I think, you know, we have to listen to people who, you know, have got a, a lot of credibility, like Jeffrey Sachs and stuff, when they're saying, well, what, where's the evidence here? You know, and, uh, um, yeah, that's what I think we need to return to. So going back to that anti-war um, idea, the anti-war sentiment in the UK and the US, it's something I'm very interested in because, I mean, it's something uh, like... I just can't imagine that we're the only ones who are anti-war, <laughs> but yet yeah, the movement has collapsed completely. It seems, at least. Um, do you have any insight into that, or do you do you think that I'm just being hyperbolic? Hyperbolic. Um, yeah. Well, what do you what do you mean? Yeah. If you could expand on that a little bit, I, mean, I guess like during that Iraq war. Um, the weapons of mass destruction, you know, it came out that it was false and that, um, and we had loads of protests on the street and there was just more of an awareness around that. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to the Syria war. I think Aaron Mate from the Grey Zone is the only journalist that is covering that the chemical attacks were, um, that the chemical attacks as chlorine were staged or um, fabricated. Um, everyone else has done a complete blackout on that topic. And so the Syrian war is just, you know, it's the same scenario, but now there's no coverage of it. Um, and now with the, with the ramping up of, well, the no cold war against China, well, the cold war against China, like mm-hmm. you're saying, um, from what you're saying, it just sounds like this is leading to a hot war. Um, so... And yet there's like really not that much pushback again. It, it, it seems like the, the progressive left are genu- generally preoccupied with uh, issues surrounding identity, which um, me and Eliana often sort of disagree about as a queer person of color, I often, I, I don't see those issues as diametrically opposed. Um, in fact, I, I feel that my experience has led me to become more suspicious of ma- mainstream narratives. Um, but the fact that the fact that the left only cares about issues of um, um, of uh, excuse me, the left only seems to focus on issues of identity in in the domestic sphere, such as racial justice and LGBTQ rights, which is fantastic, um, but does not seem to oppose um, U.S. foreign policy in any way. Concerns me, and and I know, and I. 
personally don't see them as diametrically opposed. I see them as complementary and understand that the struggles of the global South are interconnected and are also interconnected with the racism that exists in, in the United States and the UK. And, and that's kind of why we're here as, as Malaysians. Um, and that's why Jamaicans are here. And that's what uh, people of Jamaican origin are here and, and, and Indian origin are here. So, I mean, I'm seeing that this is all interconnected, but frustrated mm -hmm. that um, frustrated that the other people who I, I think should be in the same boat as me are not seeing that. Well, I think that we've got to look at things internationally, like in mm -hmm. countries like Britain and mm -hmm. uh, the US, you know, we, we recently had the defeat of Jeremy Corbyn, who's a major anti-war figure. Um, we're leading the Labour Party. We have the defeat of Bernie Sanders, who, who has taken positions against war in the US as well. So I think that's been a defeat. And, um, you know, in Britain, we have a, a very right wing government um, and things are going backwards. You know, I think um, we, we've discussed that there's huge attacks on, on, on people. Um, you know, 150,000 people are being killed by the coronavirus in Britain. This is a huge defeat for people. Um, racism's on the rise. Um, you know, not enough has been done on climate change. But if you look, look internationally, um, there are sort of signs of hope. I mean, I mentioned earlier the uh, coup in Bolivia, the US-backed coup in Bolivia was overturned. And that was overturned by, you know, a huge struggle of the social movements, um, of indigenous peoples. They defeated a US coup. You know, that was phenomenal. And, and Louis Arce um, is now the president and pursuing, you know, mutually beneficial relations with China to develop the country. Um, in, in, in Brazil, the situation, you know, is, is catastrophic. Um, there's huge protests taking place against Bolsonaro. Um, and, and so in certain places in the world, there is a, a move, you know, a movement. And then and look at what happened recently um, in Palestine, the resistance of the Palestinian people and huge protests um, across the world in solidarity. So mm -hmm. there's, and that happened in the United States, biggest, I think possibly the biggest protests that have been in solidarity with the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. So it's not like there's no pushback. It's just very difficult in countries in, in the US and in, in Europe. Um, and I think at the moment, um, people are waking up to the fact that there is a cold war against China. This isn't, you know, this is, this is in people's consciousness, a relatively new development. And we're seeing the emergence of a new movement, but it's very much at the beginning. And I think the issue on a hot war is there's a threat of a hot war. You know, I, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that that's inevitable. That would be catastrophic for humanity. It would be mm -hmm. horrific, especially if, if, if such a conflict between uh, the US and China directly, two nuclear armed states. Um, so we want to avoid that completely. But and I think um, what's concerning and what's, what's leading to more people uh, waking up to the situation is that, that it wasn't just Trump, a, a, sort of a Trump special thing that he wants to attack China like some sort of maverick. This is a position of, of the United States administration, this position of, you know, oh, it's, it's a consensus position within the ruling class in the United States to, um, you know, to, to, to try and hold back China and its, its development and its rise. And obviously out of the pandemic, one of the key things um, has been that China has actually um, defeated the coronavirus and they've got this economic growth and the IMF projects that this year they're gonna be responsible for 60% of growth in the world. Mm. So that, that means that the issue of trying to contain China from the US point of view becomes a more important thing for them to focus on. Um, so I think, um, in a sense, the more dangerous the situation gets, the more that you're going to see a response from, from an anti-war movement in 
in places like the United States and in Britain. We have just a few more minutes left and um, just before we head off, unless you have any um, questions, Wei, I was gonna switch. I was them. just gonna go to the what can we do question. Really. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah. And that's something that I do wanna ask you um, and maybe coupled with the idea of how did you get to, for you personally, how did you sort of come to, to be involved in the No Cold War campaign? Um, and uh, if you could talk a little bit about your activism and maybe in that way that can sort of help us figure out <laughs> how do we help <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, well, I think the, the thing that, that first politicized me, um, it was the fight in, in, in the global self for um, the right to self-determination, um, against war um, and occupation. Um, so uh, specifically the, the, the social progress that was achieved um, in, 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 in Latin America, particularly Venezuela under Hugo mm -hmm. Chavez, defeat of the US coup that there was in 2002. And then at the same time, the, 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 the um, struggle of the Palestinians, uh, particularly in response to the war on Gaza in uh, 2008, 2009. So that kind of what inspired me to get involved in, in politics and activism. So definitely, been very involved in the anti-war movement for for some time and yeah the, the no cold war campaign sort of emerged out of, out of a whole range of international discussions um the launch meeting involved you know uh speakers from over half a dozen countries we had um, a statement the launch statement which is what the the, the the campaign was based is based on um has been translated into 18 languages um and it involves you know the anti-war movement progressive forces in the global south um intellectuals um so yeah so um i guess my journey did start with with um you know, opposing opposing wars and and um in solidarity um with countries in latin america opposing coups and u.s intervention cool thing so what do we do right yeah. <laughs> well i think i think that you know the the fact this discussion you know this having these sorts of discussions in itself i think you both referred to the kind of huge bias that there is in the mainstream media, the lack of information. And I think we're really at a point where um, we need to build more awareness about what's happening in the world um, and establish as a mainstream point of view that a cold war is a threat to all humanity, because that is the truth. And more people need to understand that and, and, and grasp that and understand that China isn't the enemy, China isn't a threat. What is a threat is the attacks on China, they affect every single human being in this planet too, um, from the point of view of whether or not you want, you know, good 5G on your mobile phone to whether or not, you, you know, you want climate change to be, to, be, um, to be solved rather than sending warships to the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. so really building an understanding amongst um, people is a crucial thing and um, No Cold War, that's what we're aiming to do. Like you said, we recently launched No Cold War Britain. There's the international campaign and we're hoping to have a lot more um, webinars um, and events, discussions. Um, we are opposing uh, Britain sending its aircraft carrier to the South China Sea, which is on its way as we speak. And I think we need to be alert to the dangers of that. Mm -hmm. We are campaigning um, to say, you know, stop spending billions of pounds um, on, on the military. We need to be you know, dedicating these resources to the pandemic, to climate change. So I think campaigning on these sorts of issues is really important. If people haven't already done so, you can sign the international statement um, on the No Cold War website, which is on www.nocoldwar.org. And the statement is called, um, A New Cold War Against China is Against the Interests of Humanity. It's available in 18 languages. 
um, yeah, so we were trying to build a coalition um, internationally against the Cold War. And there's lots of work to do in each individual country and in Britain, the other, the other issues are as well as the military buildup, um, the waste of resources involved, economic damage that we're getting from not cooperating economically with China is also the demonization of China is, is, is leading to a huge increase in racism and hate crime. And I know you both know a lot, lot, lot about this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's gotta be an important part of our campaigning too. Great, thank, thank you, you so much. Um, is there anything else that you would like to say before we sign off? Um, no, I think it's been a really great conversation. I'm just really uh, grateful that you that you uh, have you both uh, here discussing with me. It's been really great. Thank you, Thank so, you so much, much. for coming. How do you think we did on that interview? <laughs> uh, it was, I mean, look, Fiona's such an amazing speaker and she just knows so much. So I was just in awe. Um, so yeah, I mean, she knows what she's saying and I wanted to hear everything that she said. So, um, uh, and she did also try and get a bit out of us and talk about how, how our identity and background is kind of intersect with this conversation. So um, I found it great, but wish it could have gone on for, for one more hour. Yeah, there's a lot to mm-hmm. cover there. And actually she does have um, some of her articles up on her uh, website. Um, eyes on Latin America, we'll link to everything because there's just so much more information, you know, that we couldn't cover. Um, And also we'll link to the No Cold War website, but just, it does make me realize like, there's too much to know. I, (laughs) there's like so many countries to cover. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. the thing. And um, the agenda, the imperialist agenda, um, it's kind of fascinating how big the reach is (laughs) when Mm -hmm. I think about it. You know, it just yeah. covers so much of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so there's that. And also um, the spiel of, we should do a spiel of, <laughs> if you like our videos, you can you can actually like our videos. Actually, you're, you can actually tangibly like our videos. <laughs> you can um, press mm-hmm. the um, thumbs up thing on YouTube. That, that apparently helps. I hear from other people that that mm-hmm. helps. You've been listening to The Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity. You can like our videos on YouTube and subscribe. And also we are available in Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcast, and Patreon. If you want to help us grow, then please become a patron on Patreon. We're also on Instagram at the, Insta- at the Ignoramus Guide. You can just edit that smoother. Also we're on Twitter. We're on its own Twitter. Twitter. <laughs>